0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Lee, joined by us, a new co-host today. Tom, welcome. Thank you very much. But we are not alone today. We're not. We're we have also have with Tom. us Tom Draper, a second Tom, joining us from Coalition. Coalition. Welcome, Tom.
1: Thank you very much, guys. Big fan, long-time listener. Glad to be on.
0: Yeah, super glad to have you here. So we'll dive a bit into um, kind of what you guys do and this space more broadly, but I thought it'd be super interesting to start with kind of your background, how you landed in this space, and then we'll go into the role that you currently you currently have a coalition. But how did you sort of land into reinsurance more broadly um, as we get started?
1: Uh, so my experience from a cyber and cyber insurance space has been kind of built up over nearly 20 years. So the last 20 years I've been a cyber insurance broker. So I first started my career at Willis, became WTW, moved over to Lockton, and then for the last 10 years led the Gallagher Cyber Practice out of London. And a key part of that was how can you give a product that is designed for all sizes of business but via distribution methods. And so that then naturally led to a reinsurance world. So one of the key partnerships we had when I was at Gallagher's in my 10 years there, was working very closely with the reinsurance divisions, student carriers, how we can provide a product design for SME clients across multi-countries. Mm-hmm. And the natural route to do that is reinsurance. So that was, that was really my first engagement with it was there. Uh, in my role at Coalition, I'm Head of Insurance for UK. We write on a direct basis, but of course, reinsurance is a key part of us. Capacity is the key question most of the partners have. So yeah, heavy involvement on
0: both sides. Very, very nice. And Tom's obviously our in-house cyber expert, so we brought him in, in here to sort of make sure we're staying in the most interesting parts of the cyberspace more broadly. I don't know if it will be interesting. I think I'm a <laughs> uh, low-budget
2: replacement for Mr. Rose. If it wasn't 30 <laughs> degrees outside, I would have bought a bad
0: jumper to try and make you feel more at home. <laughs> you know how stressed out I get without jumpers in the in the, uh, the rooms. So <laughs> So Top, you said that
2: your role was head of insurance and um, I think some of our listeners are just kind of getting to grips with roles like underwriter and yeah. broker and, and things like that. So um, they've probably never heard of a head of insurance at an insurance company before. So it'd be really interesting to hear like, what you do day to day.
1: Yeah, certainly. So Coalition, we've got a, a slightly different uh, approach to direct insurance. Um, we originally were founded by tech company founders. Mm. So their model for how you go to market, their model for how you support companies, is very much built from the tech world. So there is, you know, out of these 650 employees globally, um, a coalition, and that's increasing, um, less than probably 10% come from what most traditional carriers would call an underwriting role, I. someone who has a focus on the actuarial side, focus on the risk selection side from a purely risk basis side. Um, so my role very much is to support our underwriting teams, mm-hmm. you know, enable them to achieve what they need to achieve, to support our business development teams, those guys who are going out to brokers, working with them, getting deals done, but also helping educate, understand what the business model is, what they need to do to help, and make sure we hit our overall goals. So from um, you know one of the reasons that I appealed to the role for me, I've been a broker for the last 20 years, helping clients and other brokers understand cyber, that's very much the role I still have here, but I'm now going to do so within a large insurer Yeah,
0: I think that that education role is super interesting and important in the cyberspace because even though it's been around now for the better part of a decade as a pr- sort of a product class, it's still one that everyone sort of recognizes. They sort of see the existential threats of the massive cyber attacks, but the productization of it as a in the industry is still one that's kind of like, where does it fit? How should we structure it? What types of products will appeal and, and lend themselves to? to a client or a prospect in a way that resonates and that they go out and they purchase that or they add it to their program. So how have you thought about the sort of product evolution or how are you seeing the product evolution at Coalition from the sort of founding V1 product to kind of the suite of, of solutions that you guys offer today?
1: Yeah, certainly. So our start point was, i when we when founded in 2016, 2017, our start point was uh, small businesses weren't being protected from cyber risk. And whether that was a government decision you know, At the time, U.S. federal government wasn't providing much resource to small businesses in the U.S. And To be honest, not, neither in the U.K. last couple of years, it's changed. NCSE has made big investments in supporting small businesses. Um, but also, the insurance market was not geared up to write a lot of $5 million revenue companies or 50K revenue companies for cyber. That's not a position they were in. We're happy to do so at scale. And security firms weren't able to support those smaller companies compared to the big enterprise security deals they were signing. So that was very much our start point was look, how can we write and support, solve cyber risk for small business? And our start point there was education. You know, is how could we view clients the same way the attackers do? And how can we tell them they need to get better? And therefore reduce our risk, but more importantly reduce theirs. So that led to the evolution of our, what's called coalition control. It's our uh, underwriting risk management vulnerability platform that enables us to see at scale what a client is exposed to what doors are open what windows are open and actually what they need to do to fix it and helps them do so so that was very much our our start point at that level
2: (laughs) you mentioned um kind of the line the line of business is kind of ever growing and and ever developing and you know cover is getting more varied and and deeper um over the years um you would one would assume that that would make it quite capacity hungry. I think we've spoken in a lot of episodes around struggles in getting capacity, and you know, looking at property, cat cyber was probably yeah, yeah. a bit more attractive this year. Um, but how do you protect yourselves against constantly needing more and more capacity over, over the next? Well, years? I, I think
1: we we started at the very beginning with the knowledge that we had to grow the market, like the cyber market as it existed was not writing all the business it could have you know, not every single SME was there going cyber is a risk that I have. And I think more SMEs are aware of that, you know, despite being in lockdowns for three years and everyone operating on zoom and working remotely, not everyone was going, Oh, cyber is a risk to my business. And then reportedly, the broker community was also struggling with how to articulate that as well. How do I explain, how do I explain to a company they have a cyber risk? So we always thought, saw that if we were helping clients understand the risk, because we give them the product, If we help our brokers explain that, because we give them our risk assessments, we will always need more capacity because we're by our very nature growing the market rather than taking the market from someone else. Mm -hmm. So capacity for us has been a key concern. We've had an entire division set up to do that type of process. But also I think we've got quite a different mindset which has been built for the long term. So it is building the capacity out five years out. It is building a captive that we've run since the very beginning on our own balance sheet. It's been building a reinsurance vehicle that we have out in Bermuda to enable that? And then, you know, we went admitted, we bought our own insurer, admitted insurer last year. How do we access alternative capital and enable that to happen? I I think the thing for me is when it comes to bigger capital and capacity is always, can you tell the right story that they need to hear? Can they see and can you cover off the concerns they have? Can you talk about systemic risk and those type of concerns? And that's something we've done very well for the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, and does does the kind of structure of your product and having that you know, active monitoring in place help to set you apart from others in that? 100%. It's probably two, two sides of the same coin.
1: One, because we're able to turn around and say very clearly, look, if you're focused on historic events, here's how that would have impacted us. You know, We've been running since 2018 in the US, Canada we launched 2020, we launched here in the UK 2022, Australia's later on this year. Um, but we can model. Here's how our book would have performed, because our our, our platform constantly scans the internet. Mm. So we've underwritten every single account, even if we haven't seen it. If that makes any sense. But what it also enables us to do is to stop things happening. So if we become aware of a critical vulnerability, that our research team is there going. This will have an impact on business. You know, if you have this and it is being exploited at scale by threat actors, we can tell clients, guys, you need to fix this which I think positions us slightly different from the cyber hurricane approach where you're actually able to say like, well, cool, but everyone's aware this is coming and they're batting down the hatches mm. and therefore there's not going to be the insured loss you expected there to be despite the fact there was a major hurricane in Florida. Yeah, So I think that definitely has helped our capacity discussions.
2: And how does that impact the rest of the market? Like, do they, do they need to catch up or they're going to be in trouble in the future or, or where does this... I think everyone has been approaching modeling for the
1: last couple of years with a realization that the models have needed to improve. There's been a lot of work done by all the various factories. We were at Aston in Lloyds a couple of months ago, um, and there's a big focus there on evolution. In fact, we presented our new reinsurance model and our view on um, aggregate systemic risk About that. Um, it's, it's an area that there's been a lot of work being done on, but I think if you don't have the tech, you might have the confidence. And that's probably the best way to view. it. Yeah.
0: yeah, how are you seeing, so we've talked a lot in the most recent discussions on the podcast around sort of the renewal cycles and the hardening of the market and these kinds of things. Are are you seeing similar hardening that's sort of impacting your business? Do you Are you leveraging more sort of um, your captive position in your in-house reinsurer? Are you using that to offset market conditions or are you sort of seeing that where you occupy the space, and as Tom said, the sort of quality of data, where you're ev- able to evidence that as a way to sort of offset or mitigate the impact the harding market is having on you guys as an insurer.
1: Yeah, I think definitely on definitely the latter. I, I think whether we're in a hard market, soft market, market, wherever we're at in the market cycle, we need to be able to use the data to enable us to take advantage of that. The other aspect we have, I think, especially in cyber, is because the threat environment moves so quickly, mm-hmm. it's potentially less than the insurance market cycle, and more the threat market cycle, if that makes any sense. Because the insurance market cycle will, will always lag. There will always be quite a lot of time for many insurers between, they wrote the deal, sorry, they set the actuarial model, they wrote the deal, they then had the loss, the loss materialized, then, then had the learnings out of the loss, They then update, update the actuarial model. That, that will take time. And that's what we saw in the hard side of the hard cyber market, 2018, mm-hmm. 19, was the delay it took for the actuaries to turn around and be like, guys, things are happening here and we need to make some changes. And that's what led to such a rapid change in the cyber market as with all things, if it's within underwriter control, it's a smooth move. If actually people are coming from above saying you need to make corrective action, that's the bit where you start seeing supplements. That's bit you start seeing rates going up. So for us, the tech enables us to smooth, enables us to see that in advance, either not write the risks that are exposed we're able to charge the appropriate premium for those type of risks
2: so how how wrong i guess are, are the more you've mentioned the models a couple yeah. of times um and you've mentioned that you know they naturally need to keep up but even a few weeks ago um i saw a report where they, they'd run a direct comparison of kind of a cyber cat event across the different models that were there in the industry and um the disparity was Five hundred percent from the the smallest to the largest loss estimate. It, that feels like a you know the technical equivalent of a shrug of the shoulders. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean as an example when the PRA ran their cyber thematic review for Lloyd's last year, and the results. Were, you know, the worst case scenario, which was you know, pick a cloud provider be down for a month. How long is it going to impact your organisation? I think the, the spread of that was between fifteen and thirty billion. There's quite a flex there. Um, I can't. I can't really speak to the other models. I can kind of say, where, you know, where our models coming from, which is, which is based on vulnerabilities being exploited and vendors that we see. You know, ultimately, vulnerabilities, technologies, and vendors that people rely on, and, and what the impact that is actually going to be, um, rather than AWS, which has a hundred sites who are supported globally with fallback provisions, going down for a month. That that seems an unlikely scenario. You know, admittedly, AWS went down yesterday for two hours, but it was two hours. I think there's also a bit of a bias when we see things like uh, log4j, Kaseya and everyone goes, Oh, that is the, that's the perfect scenario for like our biggest concern, a systemic event that's impacted multiple insurance. but it wasn't big enough, so obviously we missed something and actually from our perspective where they're going, no, no, that's that is actually a logical systemic event. And the fact it wasn't that bad is simply how vulnerabilities work and how it's been exploited by threat actors. So, you know, in, in the modeling that we produced, we took 5,000 portfolio companies who represented 1.28% of US GDP. Uh, we looked at their vulnerabilities, looked at the vendors that they relied on, and then we worked out scenarios based on that. And then we scaled it up for the rest of the US economy. Our 1 in 250 event came out at an economic it's so not insured, but economic loss of $30 billion. So I think there is definitely a, and, and part of that is the fact that we are not approaching this like a cyber hurricane. And by that, I mean, you, you can't zip code this. This is not something you can just turn around to and go, fine, pick me, big US West East Coast, AWS site, and it gets knocked out. Mm. Um, it's something you have to approach at a far more technical and technological level which I think our teams are far more confident in.
0: Yeah, and when you think about sort of the where the business goes, and there's a bunch of questions around sort of the journey and development that, that you have there, but is the modeling something that you're also licensing to your broking partners, and is is this another sort of thing that you're offering out, or, or do you look at it from a, this is purely proprietary for us, one of our advantages in the market is this insight, or how do you kind of evaluate those? Especially not on notions. the modeling side, because that for us is, I mean, we we shared it at Aston, we shared it with groups. We want
1: feedback on that. That's the type Mm -hmm. of thing we want to engage with teams on. And more importantly, we want to be challenged on. I mean, the PRA's comment was, you can use third-party providers, but you need to think about it and have your own approach to risk. So we can't fall into the same mindset of being, this is our view from our data set, Mm -hmm. which admittedly is quite a large data set. Every single IP4 email address, you know, IP4 address in the world we have scanned, Mm -hmm. but that's still our data set and our view. I think we'd love it to be interrogated. We'd love it to be challenged. It, for us, it's not proprietary when it comes to the capacity side, because we need to be engaged. We do give it to our brokers, and every single client they send us, we give them analysis. Look, this is what your client is exposed to. This is the changes they should make to improve their posture, because they are exposed. It's why we decline risks. You know The behaviours that your client are exhibiting will lead to claims, and we know that because we've seen it. And during for policyholders, mid-year, we are there going, guys, the things you're doing, what I see... You're gonna have an instant. So please fix this. Yeah. So yeah.
0: It's it's probably more interesting as well from a in a in a model, and because you're scanning this, you're able to sort of extract like factual information. Yeah. And I and I, I say it in that way because when you look at um, property information in a you know a cat model, a lot of that is however the person loading the deal in information into the core admin system entered it. So the number of floors, the construction material, all of that is in some ways has some degree of subjectivity to it based on the way it was entered. But when you're using technology to sort of scrape technological in- insights from those companies and their online presence, there's probably actually more accuracy and truth around that, or are you seeing something different?
1: I, I would say there's more actually in truth when you then validate it. Mm. And that's the other aspect. You know, we charge each client depending on their tech stack and we can only do that because we have experience of te- some technological products being more vulnerable And it might not be because they're not good products. It just might be they're very hard to configure. Mm. So if you're a small business and you've bought this very expensive piece of kit, it's actually going to protect you less because actually it's very hard to implement within the rest of your IT strategy. So I think that's the, the, the other approach to it is actually just not viewing this as a single, who are you, where are you, what do you do? You're in the US and this therefore is a cyber exposure. It is dependent on the vendors, the technology stack you have, your cadence for patching and your overall behavior as an organization. There's a number of different variables here. So the technology helps us,
0: but we have to add to it with our learnings and the, you know, the team that we have to support that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it aligns actually with a lot of our technical approach that we take as a business. But um, where you can have simplicity yeah. allows for more security because there's less points of failure. There's less points where someone going in and doing manual work or needing to configure... Like, if we can reduce the number of things that they need to do there, the likelihood they've done it correctly skyrockets. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's...
1: And, and, and that's, you know, that's our focus. You know, we were set up to help solve cyber risk for small businesses. Yeah. Now, that's expanded. You know, small business now for us in the US is anything up to $5 billion. You know, We write large companies, large enterprises. In the UK, we write up to $1 billion, uh, revenue. But yeah, it is some, it's what makes it most strategically secure for their business operations and what helps that. And for some, that will be simplicity. For others will be heavy outsourcing, it'll be really come down to their
2: approach. It sounds like the market's come a long way. Um, so I first started working in cyber in relatively prehistoric terms <laughs> for cyber, so 2015. Um but um then like the the prevalent sales technique, both amongst um security technology companies and cyber insurers, um was fear and propagation of fear and how many people can we frighten into getting their wallets out essentially um it feels like you know now a very positive educational approach is is beginning to propagate and prevail it is how much further is there to go and and how's it been kind of working and living through that that journey and yeah i mean i
1: I think it's it's probably reflection of the claim cycle you know why did you have to sell through fear because there weren't enough claims to explain the product. So clients weren't there going, oh, I'm a J.P. Morgan or a Gap or TJ Maxx back in 2011, 2012, going, that's my peer, and therefore if they've had this problem, I'll have this problem. Um, That then changes in 2018, 2019, 2022, when you have large-scale ransomware, at which point brokers are comfortable with the idea that cyber is a product that works. It's a product that's needed, and if you don't tell a client about it, they're probably the one that's going to get hit by it but also the type of thing where clients are recognizing that this is a valid risk transfer mechanism. And I think that's, that's probably the change we've seen over the last 10 years definitely has been at the individual c- company level, insurance has become part of their risk transfer approach. And therefore, in combination with security investments, you know, digital transformation, moving themselves off legacy systems, which you know, they knew they should do 10 years ago, but they didn't want to spend the money then. Then we all went COVID remote, fine, I'll spend the money now might as well do it from a secure basis. So I think, yeah, I think there's very much that evolution.
2: And is that like a a uniform development around the world? I think, you know, Coalition as as well as many, many other companies kind of started out on the west coast of the US and then moved to national coverage in the US Mm -hmm. on the NS basis and then set up a UK MGA and then became a syndicate or, or whatever. Um, and, and then eventually, you know, created a European operation because they had Lloyd's exposure, and and then kind of worked their way out around the world like that. Which which means that places like Latin America and Southeast Asia get this stuff last. Yeah. Um, uh, like, do you see things continuing to go that way, or, or are there approaches that can be used to protect people in those regions?
1: I, I think there are definitely approaches that can be used to protect people in those regions. I think it always comes down to how. A local market views the role of insurance. So, by the very nature of it, cyber will be as an ancillary product, it's not a legally required product. It will do well in markets where there's already a large non life PNC GDP. Because there is therefore a natural view from, from especially companies that I should be transferring my risk to this method. So, why did it sell so well in the US? Well, one, the laws changed first, so therefore, regulatory wise, it was a better safe product but also there's a different risk management culture in the U.S. compared to the U.K. So in the U.S., the the risk purchasing culture is always one of um, I don't actually know what the answer is. I'll buy an insurance product that will protect me until I know what the answer is. If at any point this goes wrong, I can sue anybody in the chain. my broker who advised me, my insurer who didn't pay out. In the U.K., for example, the process is more of a what is my risk? Quantify that risk. Have I done everything possible to reduce that risk? fine, I will then buy an insurance policy once I've done everything up to that Mm. step. So there is quite a different cultural perspective on how insurance is bought. I think likewise in Europe, very similar, hence why take-up rates in these parts of the world are very different.
2: So what's next for you guys in terms of that expansion? So I said, you know, so we launched in the UK uh,
1: September last year, um, which is our third geography. Um, We are launching in Australia throughout the summer, so teams have gone on the ground there. Um we are looking at other territories. I think the simple answer is it's how we can best serve our mission. Mm. How can we protect small, medium businesses from cyber risk? Um and that will not always be necessary via us. You know, the platform that we have, the control system, um, we provide free now. You know, for small if you're a small business, you can go online to control.coalitioninc.com and you get our light version. Um so that is scalable globally. I think from the insurance side, our biggest proposition is the fact that we help companies get better. You know, we help reduce, identify the risk and reduce their risk, which means we have to have teams who can send vulnerabilities, send updates, send help, you know, the client can go on, talk to somebody, pick up the phone and talk to somebody. So that means at the moment we are very much English speaking focused because our security team, our advisory team are all US or, or Portuguese. And so actually, probably the biggest thing right now is language, language barriers. Oh, launching Quebec, which means everyone's crashed through a Duolingo course in French. <laughs> uh, and Flash also hired French-speaking teams who can support our uh, French-Canadian partners. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, 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 there is a recognition that this is not just, you, you can't just turn up somewhere and go, hi, we're here to help with your cyber. Mm. It has to be done at a level that actually works that for everyone involved, broker partners, clients in the end.
2: So what, what, what would be the kind of, to your customers, you know, you see your role as being able to look out of the windshield and kind of see what's coming down the road and, and look at how they're prepared against those, those yeah, kind of top I, I, threats? I think the
1: sexy stuff we do is, is, is weirdly not very insurance. Yeah. I um, the, said so the insurance is a vehicle to enable us to do this. Yeah. Hence why 10% of our staff, our, our team members are actually from a... So, actual insurance background. Most that come from a technical engineering or security engineering background. Um, I think the thing for me is, as I said, it's the stuff we do outside of that. So, Move It, the exploit that you know has been in the last week
2: quite popular. British, a number of major entities. Why don't you fill people in British in case sorry, they don't, just, don't know? <laughs> yeah,
1: effectively, again, an, an exploit that's um been called called Move It with various capital letters at certain points in that. <laughs> it's been exploited and you know and one of the key entities hit was the payroll provider behind british airways sorry it was the payroll provider behind British airways boots, about nine other major firms, uh, most of whom over the last couple of years have suffered a cyber incident one form or the other, but this is a vendor incident um, and for us, it was a really good example of a dependence on a supply chain risk and again, it's something we always talk about we always say and then You're asked to provide an example, and there's no sexy one that's happened recently. So this has happened. So actually for UK companies, this is a really good example of a systemic risk, single source vendor provider. They've had an event that's impacted multiple large companies, but also small companies. Um, And we started the vulnerability that was exploited that enabled this incident. Our research team saw six months ago. The hole that was being raised was visible six months ago. We just didn't know what was going to happen with it. And again, the ability to start stopping some of these things before they happen is probably our key selling point. We want to minimize an incident. We want to minimize the risk. The second thing that we're doing very well at is actually our relationship with uh, major security providers, major security teams, banks, and government agencies. So one of the areas that the cyber that isn't spoken about that much is because it's, it's not, I don't think it's sexy, is the crime side, mm. especially like the theft of funds, like money going missing. I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, there's the bit where uh, most cyber insurers don't want to talk about the fact they actually cover that loss to an extent. It's often sublimated, etc. But also, it's, it's not an area that many reinsurers are, I think, are comfortable about. That's held in fidelity to different worlds. Uh, we have an exceptional record at clawing back funds. You know, you're talking about you know, $6 million being sent from a small business in the US, sent to Hong Kong, and within nine days, we get... much all the money back and you know the client bought a policy for two million dollars but it's a service Mm. um and there's definitely things that we're doing that that feel good from an insurance perspective now the the people that we're stopping is criminals operating out of parts of the world that we all know about and all scared of and we're stopping them from causing ransomware attacks against our client or people who are succeeding getting money out of them and we're getting the money back that's quite a nice warm and fuzzy.
2: Yeah, do you, do you think some of those services will even surpass the financial limits of yeah, the yeah. insurance 100%, product? 100% because is the other aspect.
1: You, you don't buy an insurance product for your worst case scenario. Mm. You you buy a logical, you know, and we provide to all our clients like, well, here's what our actual, actual model is suggesting. Here's how we're pricing you. So here's, here's where we think you should be buying a limit to. But we don't recommend they buy the limit same as all the fund transfers they do because that's a huge amount of money but if, if that is stolen and we have the ability to claw that back using our connections within the um, various security services or crime agencies we'll get it all back yeah so there's some fun things there that to make it a bit different
2: that's great Yeah. so we can't do an episode on cyber at the moment without talking about the Lloyds' war exclusions. Without well, mentioning the war. <laughs> <laughs> it's about become a, a 40 Towers episode where I walk, out the, I walk out the door. Well, I think the whole debacle feels a bit like a Faulty Towers episode. <laughs> it's gone on over the last couple of years. Um, but for those listeners that don't know, um, essentially, um, Lloyds and every other major reinsurer financial institution in the world um, is concerned about the impact of nation-states ability to impair the ability of other nation-states to function through kind of mass cyber attacks. Um, and so they're trying to address how this is this is covered in insurance policies and, and look at what's excluded and inclu- included. And, and Lloyd's recently rolled out um, that's very recently come into force. Um, a standard set of exclusionary wording um, that needs to be used in in Lloyd's back policies. I understand some of your capacity at least comes from Lloyd's. Um, So, you know, I I guess one word answer to start with, like good thing or bad thing?
1: Well. Good thing is two words. (laughs) (laughs) I I think kind of the start point for me is, is to rewind to where it started which is there has always been a systemic risk concern regarding cyber. Again, by its own nature. I said it's something that we have, as I mentioned throughout this, disagreements over the size of, because we don't believe systemic operates in cyber the same way it does in property nat cat, or others, or casualty. And I'm conscious of the fact that for many senior members of insurers and reinsurance companies, they come from a casualty property background. So they will want to view it within systemic risk from that. The other aspect we then had is there was a WannaCry event back in 2016, you know, a systemic slash you know, nation state event against a country, which then impacted a number of insureds who are very large organizations. So then it's on the radar. And then we had COVID, at which point insurers and their boards and their risk committees, especially are going, what other systemic events are out there that could cause us to have a COVID star loss. And understandably cyber is on that list because cyber has always been on that list. Um, so the approach, so the original, you know, start point, I think, for the war exclusion was an original start point was how do we better understand and articulate systemic risk for our insureds, which is a positive thing. You know, that means insureds and insurers and reinsurers, everyone in the chain, including governments, can go, what is our role and where do we step in and where do we step out? What am I responsible for? What am I not responsible for? And how do I hand over? So, for example, you know, Paul Ree many years ago stepped up and went. There's property damage arising out of cyber event. that's critical national infrastructure and we're covering it. We're going to cover it. Great. Solved it. Perfect. I, th- I think the challenge with war is it's a peril. It's not an end result, what we're getting to. So that, that was always the thing. But there's been a lot of work done over the last three four years by all the various teams, LMAX as well. I think for me, it was a presentation challenge. But again, you're turning to groups who are not there to present. You're turning to groups who are there to enforce, inform, provide guidance. You know? I feel like it should have been presented as Lloyds affirmatively covers war. And it should not be referred to as the war exclusion. It should be called the war coverage. And here is Lloyds' approach to war coverage for cyber. Might not be right, might not be wrong, but this is the start point of a conversation we're going to have over the next 10 years. Um, But it's going to involve reinsurers, actuaries, modelling that is wrong, that is right, that is moving. And also insureds turning around going, that's not acceptable to me. From our perspective at coalition you know we look after predominantly small to mid market business and you know we do write larger risks and we've engaged with them on um, different ways to approach this but small to mid market you are not going to be attacked by a nation state you are going to be exploited by a nation state if you have a vulnerability open because they're doing a mass campaign Fine, that's what our kit does it shuts those type of events down so we're quite relaxed about it the view i've personally always taken is there is no such thing as cyber war, it, 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 it will always be a part of a bigger thing. So by the time everyone's wondering why AWS has been down for a month, you know, you're running to the hills with a shotgun and bait bean cans. <laughs> personal comment there. Very personal <laughs> comment there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reality is that, yeah, you, you saw what happened when we didn't have loo roll for a week. Yeah. So yeah. imagine not having Roll or delivery or Netflix. <laughs> the state of the nation is starting to hit some scary levels. So, yeah. I, I, th- I think for me, uh, the discuss- But also, what I like about it is we've had the first discussion. There's going to be more things coming down the pipeline. You know, cyber is probably the least of the worries. AI. How is the insurance market going to approach that? How is the reinsurance market going to approach that? I mean, as an example. Mm -hmm. How do you take like the Eno space, where every single lawyer from this point onwards is using Chat GPT to write their legal opinions, (laughs) and it turns out that Chat GPT makes up legal opinions? (laughs) So the bit you're like, oh, there's teams involved. So I think for me, it's it's a useful example of how do we react to a concern? How do the London market predominantly react to an event? Mm -hmm. But the London market was wasn't the only entity concerned about this. This is a wider global insurance. Um, so yeah, I think this is a useful test run. Yeah. The next one will be even more exciting.
2: I think I agree with you. I, I think um, there was there was a massive presentation problem because the moment you actually read the clause, you realise yeah. like it's actually a very unlikely event. It's well, it, like it, it's, it's, it's one it's, it's, nation state attacks another nation state it, with the aim of destroying it. It, it depends which one of the four you pick and which one of the adapter ones you pick, but it clearly lays out what
1: we're covering and what we're not covering. Which the old yeah. the old version was really subject to, and admittedly, at which point we go into the courts, and the courts decide. decided, which, but admittedly, you know, property insurance and property BI has been around for a lot longer than cyber has. FCA still has to run a COVID BI case via the UK Supreme Court for those to be decided. So normally, we would look to the courts mm. to provide that solution. However, I fully appreciate that's not a great customer outcome for someone they're going, I bought a policy, I've been impacted,
0: do I have coverage? Especially if that that causes a lag in sort of the reimbursement of funds yeah. or similar where it's like, well, I appreciate you paying out three years later yeah, yeah. when well, you're out of business. Yeah. Right? You have these sort of things. like exactly. and, and,
1: this, and this is a time when everyone is really aware that yeah. you're operating remotely and I'm a career dependent on my systems and everyone's having ransomware. So I would like to know that I have coverage for this. So, yeah, I, so I, yeah, I, I fully see where the concern is. Um, and I think, again, from a presentation perspective, it, it's just... You know, that was not the role of that group. The role of that group was not to present. Um, but I think that's something that will evolve. Mm. As I said, the moment AI starts
2: to get interesting, which it already is, but get even. So next is AI professional indemnity cover from Coalition. <laughs> <laughs> if you talk to our research team, they
1: would love it to be, they, like, they, they would love, absolutely love to be that. It, it's, AI for me is, um, for somebody who uh, hates writing content, mm. AI is exceptional. Um, it enables it. You know, we are we are, we are using it because if not, why aren't you? Um, but you have to do it in a very constrained measure. a bit where certain AI and large language models take all your data and mix it with others and learn from that is something that probably most regulators would not like to
0: hear that you're doing. Um, so I, I, yeah, AI is a really interesting place right now. There's, there's some interesting stuff. What they've introduced with with ChatGPT and and sort of the open AI sort of movement has introduced, which is really interesting, is we've, over the last several years, had that kind of, at this point, tired conversation around um, autonomous vehicles of yeah. where does liability stand, who's responsible in accidents, or these types of things. But we are introducing a world now where it's like, what happens when using an AI model, you have false positives from medical diagnoses, yeah. or you have you know cl- uh, legal rulings that have been written in a way that now don't cover what they should have done or there's the, the nuance around responsibility is beginning to be very confusing where in that car example was the one we tired, we wore out of you know, five years ago, but we can now apply that to a lot more, you I, know, classes of business. Yeah, and I, I think that's
1: especially true when you have people who are not technologically aware using something, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the whole um, Tesla called autopilot problem. You know, Type of thing where you like it's called autopilot, but it doesn't mean it autopilots, guys. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. The bit where it's like ChatGPT, oh, it's like Google. It's like, no, 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 it's not, guys. Yeah. It's like just because it's given you a list of cases does not mean that those cases are true. So, I, I think we're very much sorry. We're very much using it as tech-enabled. Mm-hmm. You know, it enables your teams to run faster if with guardrails. Um, you need to know have to approach it in a certain way. I think what it will do is make a lot of money for consultants. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean everyone wants to be AI enabled right now, so I'm going to have to hire somebody to tell me how to be AI enabled without <laughs> with, with those guardrails in place. <laughs>
2: and um, Go to some conferences. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I think there's I think there's money to be made in the AI consultancy world. Mm. Um, it's probably all the crypto guys who needed need to transfer over, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's there's definitely something there. But yeah, I, I, there is very much a danger that you do treat it like a Google
2: or a word doc that talks back yeah but that that's how it's designed right it's it's designed for ease of use yeah we we at superseed you know we're investigating in a big way <clears throat> the application of ai and kind of one of the rules that we're trying to stick to is if the thing that you're trying to do has to be more than 90% accurate don't use ai yeah for it Um, And and that's kind of led us into some some very cool kind of tools and techniques and things that we can introduce into our software that makes people's lives easier. But without having this risk of there's this black box going on and no one really knows how it's making decisions, but it is. um, And we can't prove that it's correct.
1: Yeah, so use cases we're seeing for it at the moment are uh, immediate customer support where effectively brokers are asking questions they ask every single day, day of the week. And almost this is an improved FAQ section. Mm-hmm. So rather than you searching the FAQs for how do I do this, find certain so in the chatbot, but the answer is going to be the FAQ we normally give you. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also a lot of work that can be done on large-scale data analysis. You know, I said we're scanning every single IP4, email address, IP4 domain address. Fine. How do we take that at scale and how do we, how do we find things?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the comment you made about you know, the black box, that is what regulators are going to be unha- unhappy with. You know, the FCA and PRA are not going to be there going, what was your good customer outcome and how does Magic Black Box achieve that? That, that is not something they're going to be looking for. Um, so I, I think, yeah, there's going to be a, again, we're in quite an exciting time. Mm-hmm. We're at the early stage of it. Well, that's not true. It's been early AI for a while. It's been the bit we can work out how to use it. Yeah. Um, I just think there's some really boring things it can do well. You know, if, it, if it turns that you know, Microsoft Office Clippy thing yeah. into something that actually helps you rather than just gets in the way, you know, the <laughs> bit, bit you're there writing, you know, that PowerPoint presentation on, you know, budget forecasting for the next three years, and it goes, "Hi, I think you're trying to do a forecast, which is not going to help you." Yes, yeah,
0: put it in for me. Yeah, yeah. well, and and you are you, you made the comment around it's going to help people move faster in these areas, yeah. and the interesting where place where this connects with, um, both government regulation and insurance is they're both not particularly known for their speed. Yeah. And I think you're going to see this continue to accelerate businesses and business models, and, and it will move to a point where both the insurance products that support those industries and those companies, et cetera, and the sort of government regulations that are designed to provide sufficient frameworks for them will struggle to keep up with the pace of change in many yeah. ways. Weirdly,
1: I, th- I think actually, in, for example, the UK, I think it's actually quite straightforward mm. because we're, we're a pin- principle-based concern here in the UK. Yeah. So the expectation is on the business. Like when the FCA turns up and says it's audit time because we've had complaints, you, we need to demonstrate otherwise. So sure. we need to demonstrate, we've thought about it from the get-go. So this is almost you know, security built into the platform type stuff, security built into the product. So therefore we have to build in good customer outcomes into the start point. So the AI needs to know that whatever happens out of this, your end result must be a good customer outcome. Yeah. So, actually, I think weirdly in the UK, we are future proofed from that, from a regulatory perspective. Mm-hmm. But it just means that you have to start from that perspective, which might involve just a lot more legwork, a lot more guardrails, a lot more ability to demonstrate how did the black box come out with that number. Yeah, I think, you know, we. I mean, there was an article I saw that, you know, one of the um, uh, US property firms had paid a claim within two seconds using AI. And you're there going, like, it's a pretty damn good. Customer out from there. That's that's exactly what we want to do. Yeah. Again, the point of which you're explaining why you paid fifty bucks rather than two fifty they requested.
0: That's a bit you then have to justify. Yeah. Well, and you you run into the little fringe cases. I know Lemonade got slapped a, a year ago, so or so uh, ago around declining claims because the video. Yeah. Face thing. Like, it's that, that's where the black box doesn't deliver that customer outcome where it's like, well, the computer said you were lying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Based on what? It's like, well, the black box output was a red no, and that was the end of that that, conversation.
1: That always always comes back to that feedback
0: loop, doesn't it? Which is
1: AI will accelerate things and will enable potentially pick a number, 80% of claims to fly through quicker.
2: Right.
1: The 20% that then get pinged, they now need to go through the manual process. Yeah. So again, the most, Individuals they'll have a better experience for some. They'll have the standard experience. I think that's it. You know A lot of the chat we see in the insurance market and reinsurance market right now is talent mm-hmm. There's been a major talent Gulf for how many years as we've gone through hard and soft market cycles and there's not been the recruitment to match that How does the market function without talent? We have to use something like AI to cover that gap um, So it's, it's a logical process. It's a logical thing we're gonna see is again. Yeah, it's more how do we have the knowledge to take advantage of this rather than getting pinned?
2: Yeah. So before we, we wrap up, there's, um, I want to bring it back to reinsurance slightly. It's fun. It car. is, okay, it fine, is it? much more fun. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you said the quiet part out loud there. That <laughs> <laughs> we have um, several renewal periods coming up. Yeah. Seven, 110 is a big one. One, next year. What's going to happen?
1: Uh, well, it's the end of free money, which you know is an interesting time for us all. It's also a it's also a world where you know there's you know, again there's money to be made in the traditional markets. If you want to write property flood, now is the hard market you've been waiting for. So I think there's going to be a lot of um, traditional work being done in very traditional ways. But again, if you want scale, you need to do it better. You need to do it faster, better data, whether it's AI, enhanced, or whatever it is. So I think there's been some work done there that would be quite interesting. In our world, in cyber insurance, um, there's going to be the growth in the market. And that's always the biggest challenge that, that the market's had. The market continued grows, continues to potentially outpace reinsurance. It's going to be what alternative capital is able to be brought in, which again, in the end of a free money world, becomes more expensive, and they're looking for better arguments. Um, And it's going to be about us solving some of these concerns about systemic. I had you bring big capacity capital in? You need to solve the concerns that they have, or at least articulate it in a way that they can price for.
2: So same stuff, but better, faster. Yeah, double down. More efficient.
0: And what are the big renewal seasons for yourselves? Are you... Do you purchase mostly at one one? Do you spread throughout the year?
1: So we're spread throughout the year because we have a combination of direct facility MGA business, but also our own reinsurance and things like that. So we are we are spread a bit throughout the year. I think we do convalesce around certain key areas. Our clients buy throughout the year. Yeah. Because you know, predominantly we look after you know, large enterprises buy at the peaks, one one, six one, etc. But small businesses renew every single month, every single day of the month so yeah we are constantly constantly growing constantly busy yeah. very very nice anything
2: else you wanted sounds to sounds like a good night to wrap to up on? On.
1: Yeah. always leave on a night. always
2: leave on a night. joyful there's efficiency Yeah. everyone needs to supersede, apparently <laughs> yeah, I didn't even pay you <laughs> no you didn't even pay me
0: thanks very much for coming in right, guys thank you much for inviting me really Tom important. really appreciate it thank you so much